0: Hello and welcome to the Toast Podcast with me, Laura Barton. For our fifth series, we'll be talking about rhythm, how it forms in us, how we carry it and where it can lead us. Patsy Rodenberg is the world's most formidable voice coach. Across more than 40 years, she has worked with politicians, business leaders and actors, including Judy Dench, Ian McKellen, and Daniel Craig. She's collaborated with the Royal Shakespeare Company and the National Theatre, and is Head of Voice at the Guildhall School of Music and Drama. She's also the author of books on speech, presence, and her great literary love, William Shakespeare. I spoke to Patsy from her home in London to hear how at the heart of her approach is a passion for story, for tenderness and breath, for all of the things that make us human.
1: All over the planet, I've been lucky enough to be asked into communities to hear storytelling. All over the planet, people tell stories in the iambic. It's the rhythm that links us all. And, of course, breath is also the rhythm that links us all. Those two things are, every day of my life, I'm discussing them or thinking about them.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I've had this thing all my life, Laura, that I want to humanise these terrible terms, iambic pentameter. It's enough to have every young actor running out of the room because they're, they're saying we've got to do iambic pentameter. And then one day I just said to a group, you know, all the iambic is, is the heartbeat, ba-boom, ba-boom. It's the first sound we hear and it's the last. The brilliance of Shakespeare is that he understood the rhythm so deeply that he could break it. Nobody else, I, I, he, he, he humanizes the rhythm because when somebody gets upset, their rhythm changes. And when a writer does that with rhythm and the heartbeat, it's electric, it's thrilling. So the iambic is the rhythm I think about a great deal. And of course that goes into speech and meaning. But underneath that, the rhythm I'm thinking about all the time, because I spend a lot of my life re-engaging people to their natural body, their presence, their breath, their voice. And of course, if the heartbeat is the sound that we first hear and the last sound we hear, the breath is the first thing we do and the last thing we do. So the two places that I live in all the time is the rhythm of speech and, of course, the great master Shakespeare.
0: When did you first encounter Shakespeare? In
1: your life? Well, I've just written a book about myself in the woman's voice. I came from a, a, a house that had no books, except I did find in a cupboard an old battered Shakespeare. And I didn't find it hard to understand. I was nine. And of course, I was lucky because I started by reading Hamlet. And for a nine year old, it starts with a ghost. How exciting is that? And nobody told me I couldn't understand it. Nobody said you can't understand it. Look, there's lots of words I didn't understand, but I could understand the rhythm. What I'm talking about with, with Shakespeare, the moment when a rhythm breaks is devastating because something is happening in your heart. So I could feel that and I could feel through the iambic, which is a returning energy, which is the heartbeat but boom there's, there's an optimism, there's hope. What I talk about a great deal in, in today's terms is that a lot of people speak off the iambic. So instead of going, hello, they go, hello, how are you? And you get people saying things like, do you know I've got the most exciting thought I've ever... S-. And <laughs> what that does, of course, is that we hear rhythm, in one part of our brain, and we hear content in the other. So people say to me, I don't know why people find me so boring. And that's the opposite to the iambic. Mm -hmm.
0: Where has that come from, and when did you first notice that?
1: God, that's the question, Laura. That is the question, isn't it? It is. Well, the way I say it to a... I talk about it to a student is that the iambic is about... The great stories are about survival. They're about important moments when the heart does change. And things that matter. Curiosity. All the things that matter. The iambic almost pulls us into our full presence. And if we live in a world that we just feel overwhelmed with and negative about, then the rhythm is going to fall in, I think. I have no scientific evidence to back what I'm saying. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: It's only what I can see and feel. And yet when you listen to somebody get excited about something, they go into iambic. Mm -hmm. We do spend a lot of our time dampening that rhythm, dampening our heart. It's all visceral, you know.
0: So you've worked with some of the greatest actors in the world. You've worked the Royal Shakespeare Company, uh, Guildhall... Um, where else should we name? Who else should we name? The
1: National Theatre for years. And luckily enough, all over the world in companies. Mm-hmm. I've been very lucky.
0: And you began, you trained yourself at um, Central School of Speech and yeah.
1: Yes, I did. I suddenly thought that teaching was more important than acting. What I've been writing about is how difficult I find speaking. I think you go into the thing that you find difficult i was considered not a very good speaker so i was spent i was sent to elocution lessons but when i got to central i needed money because i didn't have enough money so i got i don't know how i did it actually i got a job teaching in holloway and pentonville in the evenings i can remember the room i was in suddenly thinking it's more important to release people's voices than it is to act now, that could be because I suddenly realised I could be a good teacher. My God, it takes years to, to even scratch the surface of being a good teacher. And maybe I knew I wasn't a very good actor. Who knows? But I just, I felt a vocation.
0: When you said you weren't a good speaker when you were younger and you were sent for elocution lessons, what was what was off about the way you spoke and why why do you think it was?
1: I hesitated, I muttered. I think it's absolutely to do with I don't enjoy chit-chat. If I got into an interesting conversation and I could talk about something that I felt was important, I was off. But I, my mother and grandmother who lived with us, they were working class and they were dragged into the middle classes and I felt then and I feel now... That they were very caged and their voices were caged and they were good listeners, but they didn't speak. They were out of their depth. So small talk. My father didn't want to discuss things. The male privilege for centuries has been to do with, I will speak only about the things I want to speak about. So the things I wanted to speak about, he didn't want to speak about. So I think I closed down. I think if you got me on a a subject that interested me, I mean, I was a boring. I say to my son, you know, I'm a nerd. He said to me recently, I was worried about him hanging out with a particular person. And he liked somebody else. And I said, well, so-and-so's really nice. And he said, but he's a nerd. And I said straight away to him, but I'm a nerd. There's there's no bigger nerd than me. And actually, a lot of nerds do quite well.
0: Speaking as a nerd, I'm I'm all for the nerd, and that's that's good. Yes. Yeah. Did then when you had this new command of language and speech, did that distance you from your from your family?
1: No. The Shakespeare actually belonged to my mother. And alongside it, I sort of burrowed into a cupboard. I found a battered a poetry book. And I found out that she loved poetry. So we had that connection. And my grandmother, who was a hard nut to crack, she was ferocious and terrifying, but wonderful. She was bardic. She told stories. So, in fact, I couldn't have had better people around me, although I didn't know it at the time. It's she told Filthy stories, sometimes only to me. (laughs) I was nine or ten, and I remember going, "Wow, this is a daring story!" But she was a bardic figure.
0: It's interesting to me that you've got this lineage; it's very female, and you have just been writing Mm. about the female voice, and that's been a real passion for you. But also that you have a son now, and you have to bridge that that gap between the male and the female.
1: Do you know? I've taught more men. Because all the areas I teach, in, there are more men. I love teaching men. I have no issues about that. Mm -hmm. Look, my belief is that the vast majority of people come onto the planet with the most amazing voice and breath system. It's all there. It's all there. That little cry as they call out to the world is completely free. And then we get caged by habits. And for centuries, women's voices have been caged by them not being equal. And I was very happy in the 70s, you know, equality. I was a feminist. Still am a feminist. I thought it was going to get better. I thought women's voices would get better. And part of my book is about women's voices are getting worse because in a strange way, in the 80s, they felt that maybe they had equality and they didn't have to do it. They didn't have to work on themselves. But I think that's a bit unfair of me. I think it's because the pressures on women, it's interesting, isn't it? Just at the time we got equality, the media swung in and gave us this idea of perfection and sexualized young women very early. I didn't have that when I was brought up in the 50s. And all the clothes and all the behaviors flows our voices down. So if you look at a group of, say, 30 young people, there are men in that group that have not lost their natural way of standing, their presence, their breath system. Some of the men haven't, because, of course, perfection is now grabbing young men, which is a killer. By the way, you, we all know that perfection doesn't exist. Why are we seeking something that does not exist? I was at, lucky enough to be at the a concert when Alfred Brendel did his last concert. And, and at the end, he said, I didn't get it right.
0: No.
1: You know, we don't get it right. But the women that you're looking at, their bodies are held and distorted. Mm-hmm. They're holding their stomachs in. They're trying to do this with their shoulders. They're, they're, it, it's, and all those physical tensions weaken the voice. Mm -hmm. If you cannot breathe, I mean, that's my great passion is to get people to breathe again, because until you fully breathe, you cannot use your voice. You cannot think clearly and you cannot feel clearly and you cannot be fully present, which is my other passion. Mm -hmm. So I look at a group and there are a few men that are completely in their bodies. They're completely connected. Some of the guys are not, but the habits don't seem to be so deep. And then the women are in trouble. Mm
0: -hmm. I'm curious, actually, because if I think about the way that female perfection, female beauty has come to look um, in the last sort of five, 10 years, it's that very photoshopped, very blurred, almost you can't even place its ethnicity or its belonging. It's such a mixture because there are so many surgical procedures and augmentations going on and makeup techniques and filters and things, does something similar happen to the voice or is the female, ideal female voice silent still?
1: Yes, because if the body isn't free, then you can't breathe. Mm -hmm. And if you can't breathe, you can't really power the voice. Mm -hmm. But if the breath doesn't go down right to the low abdominal area, which is, there are two major power points in the human body, the front of the foot and the lower breath. So if you put yourself in high heels with tight not allow your stomach to move, to let the breath in, you are killing your breath system and your voice. Because here's the next scenario. You try and use your voice. You haven't got breath. What do you do? You start to push your voice. So it's no longer naturally free. And with women, that means that the larynx goes right up and you can't ever come down again. And equally, people say to me, why are they listening to me in the boardroom? And you say, well, it's very hard. But it's look, I'm not being cruel. These things are very easy once you understand what you have to do.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's not difficult. And the good news is that if you go back to your um, natural breath system, the body is so relieved.
0: Mm. Yeah.
1: You know when you do one of those silly trips in the street and you do that funny dance down the street to stop falling over actually when you come and stand up again you feel great because all the body has reconnected it's there for us and the breath and rhythm is critical that's the other thing about rhythm you see if i can't get my breath down i can only have a high breath and the high breath and the natural breath there should be no tension across here but the high breath, <gasps> that rhythm—you can't shift it, and you're on the pathway to a panic attack.
0: So you have a lot of public speakers, business people, teachers come in see and see
1: you. It's not anybody it's not, who needs to use their voice. I got into terrible trouble early in my career because all my teachers said to me, "Why are you w- working with normal people? <laughs> we normally just did actors and yes, leaders." and the singers but why not work with anybody Mm. well i'm curious i'm I'm just curious no voice is the same no habit so if you've got the natural voice you've got the habitual voice but everybody has a habit and in in the habits it is a history
0: which is rather lovely in its way i suppose
1: very lovely very privileged i'm very privileged Mm. that people trust me enough to release
0: So when someone first comes in to see you, what are the first steps you take them through? Do you you talk about that history or do you just listen to them speak?
1: There are routines. You look as well as listen. You can see a, a lot as people, as a person walks into the space. Just like you know if you're in the audience and a great actor comes on stage, you know that you're in the presence of authority long before they speak. And you can see all the habits in people. You can see whether they're present very quickly. That's not magic. That's years of doing it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: There's no quick fix. That's the other thing that my students now have to bear, that there's some idea that these things are easy to do. But you look at somebody, and then there are signs. Are they present? What I call second circle. Are they with me? Are they making eye contact? What placement of the body but also the breath this is the other great rhythm you can feel somebody's breath even in silence
0: absolutely what, what are the signs that you're looking for physically
1: well if the breath is high in the body if the shoulders are tight if you can see jaw tension if they're standing and their knees are locked if you lock your knees it reverberates up into the throat the larynx closes These very small things. Now, in most people, they get by. But if they have a big event they have to do or they have to suddenly... A lot of women go from being incredibly good leaders but they normally do one-to-ones. And then they open up into a big space. And that's when the problems come. So the voice might be effective, but not effective in a big scenario.
0: I think for women as well, when they when they suddenly have to be in front of a huge group of people, there's this sudden focus on how they look as well as how they sound.
1: Shall I tell you a little secret?
0: Tell me all the secrets, Patsy. No,
1: I won't tell you them all because I don't know them all. But it's so interesting that even a very experienced actor, a woman will come on stage and they'll never hit centre stage. Really? They'll always be a few feet. And then you have to say to them, get centre, get to the centre. A man will hit the centre. I mean, I'm talking about actors, not only because I work with them a lot, but these are people who want to be seen. The first thing you have to face as an actor that you're going to be seen. You have to be revealed. And you have to be heard. Every artist knows this. You go into acting because you're trying to stop your fear of being seen or your fear of being heard. It's a very interesting conundrum. You watch women leaders do a great town hall, it's very important. The man has introduced and he walks on and he stands by the podium and then starts. A woman starts before she reaches the podium because I'll get it over with Patsy, I'll speak very quickly, I'll get it over with, I'm very nervous. And uh, these things can be sorted, but they do I have a right to be there? Do I have anything important to say? Are they looking at me rather than listening to me? All those things. Now, men have it as well, but it's not as harsh. It's not as harsh.
0: And the way that men react to that fear, is it tangibly different to the way that women react
1: to it? That's a very good question. I think by the time a man comes to me, it's serious. Women will ask for help sooner. So I don't know whether I can accurately answer that. I know that when a man feels that they... Have what is a car crash on stage, you know, that awful moment when you, you just forget what you're going to say, you can't do it, and you start to shake or you start to. It's big. When a man comes, it's big. Women are more sensitized to it and probably come sooner. But it's a very good question.
0: And how do you work with women in a way that is different to working with men? Because they must have their own inherent rhythms, just as not even just in the way they speak, but in, in their ego, I guess.
1: Well, I'll tell you something. I started to realise some years ago, too late in my career, really. When I first went to India and Africa and other places, I got a very clear request that the women, in order to release, they needed to work without men in the room. I cannot look up and make eye contact if a man is in the room.
0: Wow.
1: And I thought women could cope in the West... (laughs) And then I realized that when I offered it a few years ago as an option, the women said, thank God. Thank God I can now experiment with release and my own vulnerability without a man in the room. Now, of course, you've got to get them strong enough and skilled enough to deal with anything. So I think it's still true in schools because i go into schools teaching that the very bright women hardly ever speak in a mixed school it's very true in the corporate world that women are often the last to speak they allow themselves to be interrupted they come out of a meeting and say do you know i had that idea i told him that and He's just taken my idea. So then I coach them. Well, you've just got to say that was my idea. <laughs> what, what happens with a lot of women is that they wait too long to speak.
0: Yeah.
1: And it builds. And then it comes out inappropriately. I found that in myself. I had to train myself. All this talking about keeping a safe space. And I think I, think I do. It doesn't mean to say I don't have struggles, but I don't. Have discipline problems,
0: yeah.
1: And what I've learned to do is, as soon as something annoys me in the space, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: you know, there's somebody working and somebody does an eye roll. You say, "Excuse me, what are you doing over there?" And then you let it go because then, and the and the group is so relieved because they know that you know that that person is the person is trying to destroy the work, and everyone feels fine. But what I used to do which was unfair, I used to wait a couple of times and then do it. By the time I did it, it was out of order. What are you doing, you know? And I, my um, festering rage, it's better just to say, I say to women all again, the mantra speak sooner rather than later. Don't go into a, a meeting and wait 20 minutes before you speak. I don't ever coach anyone to say anything useless. I mean, some people come and go in and just ramble on. But otherwise, nobody really knows you're there. They'll ignore you. We're still being ignored, you know.
0: Oh, God, yeah. (laughs) I'm very aware of that. When women try to convey anger, is there a way for them to do that,
1: that can't be shot down? Anger is not pushing. And what women normally do is start to push. And I can't listen to that voice. But again, if you say it sooner, that doesn't build. Yeah, My work is about embodiment. It's not about explaining how to do something. In the old ideas of rhetoric, which was only, of course, taught to privileged young men because they knew that speaking well gave you power, you had to deliver. Now, they knew delivery so well that nobody analysed it, but... Before you can be effective as a communicator, you've got to go back to your natural presence, to your body, to your breath, your voice, and your speech muscles. You've got to do craft. I'm an artisan, really. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you can't just suddenly fix a voice or a rhythm. And that's the other thing about breath, that if you've got the wrong tensions, your rhythm is always slightly off. And again, when women get nervous, they stop breathing. Well, men do as well, but women do it a great deal. And then they lose the whole rhythm. They don't know when to interrupt. There's no flow. So you've got to keep this flow of the breath to catch your... It's like catching a wave. How do you define presence? I
0: realise you've written a whole book on it.
1: Well, it it comes from a an event I had very early in my teaching whereby I was in a staff room with very experienced teachers and I didn't like the way that these teachers taught I don't believe in cruelty in teaching that doesn't mean to say I haven't made mis- huge mistakes in my life but I, I I was taught with cruelty and it's not it doesn't work but they were talking about students they were going oh he's got it darling oh she hasn't oh god why did she get a place here and I thought it what are they talking about it so I was walking back home and I thought, I think they're talking about us being present. And it is when we need to survive. And it is when we look out at the world and receive from the world. It's a, it's a, it's a two-way street. And you can see it because people are looking out at the world and their body is alert. So you can see people having a, a meal together and they're getting interested in something and immediately they will sit up and get alert. So it, it, presence, is a connection through the body and the breath. Even if you're quiet, you can be present by breathing to something outside you. And I've devised this thing called the three circles of energy, whereby I call being present, which is a two-way street, a second circle. When you're in first circle, you're pulling away. Most women are in first circle their spines, their energy, their voice is dropping, because that's the servant. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If you go to the theatre and the curtains opened and there was a figure standing on stage with their feet together and their spine slumped and their shoulders rounded and they're looking into the floor, you would think to yourself, servant, long before the play started, really. You did the first image. And that's really how a lot of women have um, been told to stand and be. Third circle, which is a much more male habit, which women started to take over in in the 80s, is when your chair, well, we've had one over the other side of the Atlantic. We've had a typical third circle, shaking hands, always looking beyond you because you give out, but you never take in. Most bullies I meet are third circle. So we're all trying to get to this sweet spot of balance in between with your presence.
0: So do we quite often mistake that third circle behaviour for leadership?
1: Yes. It started at a certain point. Women started to imitate it, but it's not an alpha, you see. What happened is that I think we said that that was an alpha. That's not an alpha. Obama is an alpha, Mm. centred in the middle, not trying to push, absolutely vulnerable and strong. Third circle is bluff and it's trying to be strong without vulnerability yeah. I call them, well I didn't I was working with um, somebody from the SAS some years ago and I, I've always enjoyed working with really powerful men because they have no problem with women mm. you can have your spats, you can have your arguments but it's rather like, one of the reasons I love Shakespeare is that he, he likes his characters to marry women that are equal you know, that, that can hold their own uh, long before anyone suggested that women were equal. But I said to this guy, do you know, I love working with you because there's just no agenda. We can have our arguments, we can disagree. And he said, well, that's because I'm not a boy man.
0: Yeah. We, we have more female leaders right now,
1: globally. I don't think we will save the planet until the female voices come forth. Because, Mm -hmm. well, by the time a leader gets there as a woman, she's worked much harder. And the good ones are really good.
0: And are most of those women, are they expressing themselves in that third circle way? No, I think women are
1: getting it. I mean, I have tremendous hope. I get it from my young women now. In the last 15 years, I saw women start to want to be political. And the men, actually. I think there's tremendous hope.
0: You teach a lot through story and, and those sort of stories that we, there's moral stories that we've passed down for generations Why do you think we carry those so closely, regardless of culture, regardless of of age? You know, it it may be that somebody doesn't know that they are effectively thinking about the the lessons of Hamlet or whatever, but they probably are.
1: Well, I've, I've often thought what anthropologists talk about this moment when we carried the old, we carried the disabled. That's an extraordinary moment. But maybe they also have stories, The storyteller is terribly important, not only about there's a waterhole that we once visited 40 years ago that might save our life, but it's the decency. It's about power. All Shakespeare is about, really, if you isolate it down, is power. You mustn't misuse power, but you have to use it. There's a lot of women, that's what I have to teach them. They don't misuse their power, but they also have to use their power. They'll let things go, and that's not fair. And the other great weakness that women have, and not only women, but men, but for centuries, its it was absolutely critical that women were liked.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You can't be liked as a leader. You might be, but you can't have that as your major preoccupation.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You can't play games as a leader. And women because they've had to survive, are very good at playing games, be it masks, be it disguises. So Shakespeare debates this continually. The other great debate is love. Is this unconditional love or is it conditional love? And the other great debate is, is this justice? Is it divine justice or man-made? And those elements, I believe, are in every great story. Mm. What I often do with, when I'm teaching power to a leader is to get them to speak Shakespeare because, A, they're getting their voice warmed up and strong, but, but this amazing thing happens that the, the material starts to affect them, mm. the rhythms. Which passages or, or scenes do you use? Oh, all sorts, depending on the, the problem But the good start is Sonnet 94 Mm. when he talks about they that have power to hurt and will do none, that do not do the thing they most do show. Now, this is when people don't like it. Who moving others are themselves as stone? People say, that's awful. I said, no, it's not. Cold, unmoved, and to temptations slow. You do not want the person to lead you to be tempted by you. Mm. You have to show no emotions. So the first eight lines are this amazing description of the good use of power, because the people who can use their power well, they rightly do inherit heaven's graces. And then we go right down to a flower and somebody who is corrupting themselves. So that's a jolly good start. But, you know, all over, and there's not a scene in Shakespeare where it, do, it, it doesn't come up in some way. mm mm-hmm.
0: Absolutely, the voices that we hear in in public spaces now, whether that's on the radio or television or politicians, they're they're wildly different to even you know twenty years ago.
1: I think voices are always changing. There are benefits of COVID. It doesn't feel like it some days. You think I can't bear this anymore? But number one, we realise that we want contact with people, and secondly we're slowing ourselves down, which is back to rhythm. Yeah. Back to breath. And most people are working much too quickly, much too carelessly. You can hear that in voices. You can hear the tension in voices. And maybe people will return to something that is simpler and more present and with a better rhythm, a healthier rhythm. Mm -hmm the rhythm we live in in urban setting yeah. settings is just appalling.
0: And you've recently left the city, haven't you, yourself?
1: Well, I'm going to. I'm going to move out of London because I, I want to go back to nature. But I also want to do something in England. I've been all over the world. I, I want to come back home. And I want to resonate with something here. I've been offered a space in uh Australia, and I love Australia, but I don't feel I belong there but it it's also my my love of Shakespeare that there's something I've bought a sixteenth century house, so maybe I'm also going back yeah to meet Shakespeare somewhere
0: yeah that's a nice way to put it
1: to meet his ghost there <laughs> but look I love birds i love i love nature i love trees i've i've uh, always planted trees. Mm -hmm. And I thought maybe I I will live long enough to plant a nice woodland.
0: Which brings its own rhythm, I guess.
1: Absolutely. Nature's rhythm. I mean, that's what other people are feeling, isn't it? I mean, it's it's very unnatural what we're doing. You know, in small spaces, it's harder to breathe. When I went into the Guildhall, when it opened in the 80s, there was no window. You couldn't look off. Just look across the street Look at a tree and breathe to it. You're breathing better. Look across the sea. That's why, you know, in Shakespeare's great sonnet about unconditional love, 116, he bring, he puts two people in a little boat on the sea looking at the stars. Because if we can look at the stars and we can look at the sea, we can breathe. And maybe we need that. Maybe I need it.
0: Maybe we all do, yeah. Yeah, that's very true. When do you lose your breath? When do you find yourself having to re- re-centre that or be present again?
1: I fight to breathe properly. I often have to remind myself. I had an extraordinary experience when I was 40 of a late onset asthma attack. And I was in Portugal on my own at a time when the, they didn't have an ambulance service, it was a voluntary. So I decided I had to breathe my way out of this. And it was a three-day battle. Wow. It was like some 1950 Shakespeare movie. All the ghosts of the people who tried to stop me breathing walked into the space.
0: That's extraordinary.
1: And I just had to do what I teach people to do, but was obviously not doing well enough. And so my body said, okay, do it. Because, you know, if you're frightened of people, and I was frightened of my father. I think a lot of people were frightened of him. And I had to force myself to breathe in his presence. Next time, here's, here's about rhythm. Next time the person you find difficult walks into the room, notice what happens to the rhythm of your breath. It's an extraordinary knowledge that you either stop breathing. You know, there's there's a wonderful moment with rhythm and breath when you're in silence with somebody, but the breath, the rhythm is there. But you can be in silence with the breath being held, and that's torture. So you think, "I'm, I'm in silence, it should be nice. No, I'm absolutely not breathing. There's no rhythm in my breath, or it's fragmented. Of course we're breathing because we're alive, but it's not flowing. So I was having to reset my breath.
0: Mm-hmm. what is the first step in those moments
1: I think you have to let go of something I mean if, if you often feel it if you leave a party or if you leave a relationship and suddenly you feel you can breathe again
0: mm.
1: nobody else would see the difference but you can feel the difference
0: mm-hmm. I think people do see the difference when you leave that kind of they they see how yeah. you carry yourself immediately quite differently
1: yes you're right but I think for people, you you don't you don't even notice that it's happening until it's too late, and then you have to you have to reset your breath back to the natural rhythm. But it's a life task because things are going to hit us almost on a daily basis, and then you you've got to reset. It's like a dog when it has a bark; it has a little sniff round, walks, and then flops down, and you feel the sigh and the breath resets. There he is on on cue. <laughs> And he's now going to flop around and just reset his breath.
0: Well-trained. <laughs> that, that Well-trained, eh? <laughs> um, I remember when we've spoken in the past, Patsy, you've told me there are little tricks you can do, like if you have to do public speaking or if you're scared of somebody coming towards you to place your hand on a table, just something to to yes. sort of ground you.
1: Get your feet forward, get your weight on the balls of your feet. Even if you push without the shoulders tightening. Mm-hmm. People think all their power is in the shoulders. It isn't. It's in the lower breath. You've got to engage the lower breath, which is in, in the pelvic area, and you, you breathe down. But even if somebody's worrying you, just check your shoulders are released. Here's a nice little exercise. Sometimes when you get anxious, even if you think of sighing out and gently sigh, the breath resets. I was working with a, v- a very successful barrister the other day. I know her, and she came because she said there's something happening with my voice. And she's got a fantastic voice. And I said, you're holding your ribs up. Why are you holding your your ribs up? And I sort of got her to release. And of course, when you release attention, you often get weepy. Mm -hmm. We start to allow out the emotion that we're not allowed. So this is a huge generalization, please forgive me. But for women, it's rage. And for men, it's grief, the things that they're not allowed to show. It's getting much better. My son's generation, it's much, much better. But I said to her, what's, what's got gone on there? You've just blocked your ribcage off. And she said, oh, God, I've just been defending somebody that I shouldn't have defended. But it was obviously a very unpleasant case, and suddenly her ribs had locked, so we had to reset them.
0: When you spoke about that moment when you realised that teaching was your vocation did you feel that realization physically and did it feel
1: physically different yes i felt that it was worth doing part of my problem as a child is that i was very serious and that was mocked and it wasn't that i didn't have a sense of humor but i also found that when i taught i could make people laugh i always think it's such a beautiful
0: moment when you hear somebody laugh and sometimes it's wildly different to the way they speak And there's such a
1: release in that, isn't there? Yes. And then have you noticed that some people can't laugh? I have. (laughs) Yeah. Or they just scoff. It it occurred to me that the only socially appropriate release that we we have really in our culture is getting better is laughter. That's the one release we're allowed. But a real joyful laugh is just gorgeous. And I would suggest that we can only have joy in a room when everyone is included and it's safe. And that is the, the leader's job. It's the teacher's job, it's the leader's job. And there are very unpleasant spaces and there are very unpleasant leaders. Somebody has to lead. Do you have favorite voices? Not really, I'm, a, I'm, I'm very interested when I don't listen to the voice, I hear what's being said. That's interesting. I remember when I was at the RSC thinking to myself, you know, those very beautiful voices. Hmm. And I remember sitting at the back of the theatre thinking, it's almost, if I'm this, if I'm thinking it's a beautiful voice, it's almost as bad as not being able to hear someone.
0: That's very true. Whenever I hear those very beautiful voices, those, those actorly
1: voices, it sounds, it's almost like topiary of the air. Do you see what I mean? It- Absolutely. The voice should match the content and the voice should serve the story. That's what I believe. Topiary is a very good, I must say. I will use it. That's a very, very good description because it is being cut around as they speak it. But authentic, connected, truthful communication can change the world.
0: Is there something that our listeners could do each day to in some way enhance their their own rhythm of breath and speech?
1: Well, this is a question I ask myself every morning. Where am I? So, and and for me, because it's about embodiment, I will stand and you stand. And if you look down and your feet are under your hips and you just feel your weight go forward a bit onto the front of the feet and you unlock your knees and you put your hand on your low abdominal area and just see if you can feel it move when you breathe. And you think your spine is up, you stretch up a bit and you think, Let's get my spine up a bit more, and you release your shoulders, and you look out at the world. Look at things, and as you do that, take a very calm, deep breath to that point, and then maybe start humming a bit. Warm up your voice. Hum a bit. Mama, mama, mama. Ma. Play with your voice. It's a wonderful instrument. It's an extraordinary instrument. I always remind people that, you know, we try to use our voices before they're warmed up. Listen to a baby in the morning before they have a good old scream to get you up. They warm up their voice. Ma, 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 And then think, here it goes. Warm up your voice. One of the loveliest things you can do to your voice and for your voice is to read out aloud. Stand, breathe. doesn't matter if you make a mistake. It doesn't matter if you fail. It doesn't matter if you can't say a word. Just do it I'm a great believer that if you speak something you understand it differently deeply if you want to if you know that something's going to be nerve-wracking take the breath practice it out aloud you practice you can't think your way out of certain things yeah. you've got to do your way out and that's why I'm a craftsperson
0: Toast Podcasts are presented by me, Laura Barton and produced by Jeff Bird The music for this series is by Laura James Toast is a British clothing and lifestyle brand that aspires to a slower, more thoughtful way of life To hear more episodes from this and former series head to Toast Magazine which can be found at www. Toa.st. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do like and subscribe.